welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Young Turks, Bill Moyers' Journal, The Onion Radio News, and Ring of Fire. of President Obama's first budget, newspapers were filled with talk of a radical shift in the nation's economic policy, if not its overall politics. This was not seen as a good thing, mind you, primarily because of the White House's decision not to renew some of the Bush tax cuts for the very wealthy. How the media reacted was telling. According to the LA Times, on February 26th, Obama's budget, quote, laid down controversial markers on almost every major issue facing the country, close quote. Their evidence, tax cuts for the poor and middle class, and tax increases for the wealthy and for major corporations. It's hard to imagine that would be considered controversial by the public. Meanwhile, the New York Times sounded a bit like Fox News, calling Obama's proposals, quote, a pronounced move to redistribute wealth by reimposing a larger share of the tax burden on corporations and the most affluent taxpayers, close quote. That's strong language, to be sure. Were the Bush tax cuts, which distributed wealth wealth upwards ever described this way? We couldn't find any such language in the Times archives. We did find a February 2001 article that announced Bush's tax plan in which he calls it a boon for the working poor. The Times also stressed that the Bush White House would fight to make sure corporate lobbyists were not reaping the benefits of their policy. So the lesson would seem pretty clear. Raising taxes on the wealthy is more controversial than cutting them, or so say the corporate media. Come on to my house and my house, I'm gonna give you figs and dates and grapes and cakes. Eh? Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you candy. Come on to my house, my house, I'm gonna give you everything. the Washington Post this morning. I don't physically pick it up. I look at it on the internet, of course. <laughs> it's a new age, it turns out. And as I look at the Washington Post, I see that uh, there's an interesting article about how lawmakers have decided to uh, remove the cap on executive pay from the stimulus package. Hmm, interesting. So, yesterday, they bring the Wall Street CEOs in front of Congress, and they say, you sons of bitches, you better do right. And you know, you violated our trust. Now, if we're going to trust you again, you really have to be sensitive about it. And they say, oh, we got it, man. We got it. We're bankers second, Americans first. And Congress says, good, and now we scolded you. Okay, oh, good. They feel properly scolded. And uh, what do they do in the morning? Well, no one's looking. They say, uh, take that part out of the bill where we have to cap their pay at $400,000. So they're going to let them make whatever the hell they want. All that uh, stuff yesterday in front of Congress was a dog and pony show. Now, I knew it was a dog and pony show. I knew they were just playing politics. But I didn't think they were going to be this uh, brazen about it. That the very next day that they would say, oh, let them make whatever they want, despite all the bullshit that we said yesterday in public. And that's apparently exactly what it is. 
Now, why does this make me so angry? Because it tells you there's nobody on your side. The Democrats don't fight for you. The Republicans don't fight for you. Certainly the bankers aren't on your side. Who the hell's on our side? And this is a circle in Washington and New York, and they all pay each other. You know, the CEOs pick their own boards, and then the boards pay the CEOs exorbitant rates uh, because they're so talented. They're so talented, you don't want them going anywhere else. And then the CEOs take the money, and they give some of it to the politicians in D.C., and then in the politicians in D.C. relax the rules so that the CEOs can make more money. So they get all this money circulating in Washington and New York, and then where do they get the money from? Oh, they didn't. They crash. They crash and burn all the companies, and then go, oh, but let's go pick the American taxpayer's pocket because those suckers are up for it. They'll do it every single time. And then when they get pissed and they act up a little bit, well, then we'll do a little show, and you guys will come in front of us, and we'll yell at you, and you'll go, oh, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. And then while they're not looking, we'll remove the part of the bill that was going to tell you that you can't get paid the exorbitant fees that you've been getting paid. So then you can go back to making all the damn money you want, and you'll be at the, on the dime of the American taxpayer. How do you like them apples? Well, I despise those apples. I can't stand those apples. I can't. I've had enough of them. And what I want to know is, look, this is a very good article from the Washington Post. I'm glad they told us about this, and they're on top of it. Now, I'm going to ask the rest of the media, please tell us who the hell took it out of the bill. Because somebody took it out of the bill. It was in the bill. Remember Claire McCaskill came out, the senator from Missouri, and she said, these CEOs are idiots. Literally, that's verbatim what she said on the floor of the Senate. And we're going to cap our pay at $400,000. And they were talking about even taking some of the money back that they had gotten in the first place, right? So the $18 billion in bonuses, et cetera. Uh, but definitely we're going to cap them at 400000 So they make a big show, and then they sump, and it was in the bill. That's what I keep telling you. The Senate and the House had agreed to it. The Democrats and the Republicans had agreed to it. And right before the bill becomes final, and this is what they do every time, and Bush administration did it every time. They was like, oh, yeah, you guys all agreed to that? Now here, Dick Cheney has changed the whole thing. Now, God damn it, sign it, okay? It's too late. It's too late. You already said you were in favor of it. If you don't do it, we'll say you were uh, for it and then you were against it. But that's a Bush trick, man. Now, so who the hell pulled this Bush trick? And I literally want names. You got to give me names. I don't. I don't care if it's Obama people. I didn't. I voted for Obama, but I didn't say, okay, I am now going to remove all of my judgment and give it to Obama, and not going to use my own mind. No, I retain the right to use my own intellect. No, this doesn't make any sense. And I don't care if it was a Democrat or Republican who did it, but I want to know who it was. Was it Rahm Emanuel, who's uh, been shepherding this through the House and the Senate? Did he think, oh, no, we've got to be nice to Wall Street, they give us money? Oh, was it Tim Geithner who said, oh, no, you don't understand, if we don't do this, Wall Street won't cooperate with us? That insane idea? If you don't want to cooperate with us, great, we'll nationalize the banks, and you can get the hell out of here. Oh, no, but then we can't use the talent on Wall Street. <laughs> talent on Wall Street. So, was it them? Was it a Republican? Who was it? Now, we got to find out, man, because this is 100% unacceptable. Now, you're telling me that these guys can continue to make millions upon millions of dollars when they bankrupted their companies and they want to borrow my money. We talked about this in the post game yesterday on the show. 
You know what it is? $3 trillion when you talk about the stimulus package, the bailout, and what the Federal Reserve is going to spend. And that's at a minimum. Bloomberg's talking about $9.7 trillion, according to Bloomberg News. But let's stay with the conservative number. $3 trillion. That's $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in America. You got a family of four? They're picking your pocket to the tune of $40,000. Even if they don't lose all that money and they just lend that money to the bankers, some of it's going out the door. I mean, just last month, $18 billion went into the bankers' pockets. And they said, no, you don't understand. If we don't do it, we can't retain them. Who the hell wants to retain these guys? And now Congress, the people that are supposed to represent us, well, they just stabbed us in the back. And they, they are taking it out of the bill, so now the CEOs and the bankers and the executives can make any damn thing they like. It's a freaking outrage. And if you're not outraged by it, you're not paying attention. Or you're a sucker. Uh, you know the old saying, a fool and, a, and his money are soon parted. Well, they're definitely parting with our money. And that's the last thing I want to emphasize here. Look, every day that we delay is another day that they take more money out of the system. We did this on the show yesterday. We showed you Joseph Stiglitz, probably the top economist in the world. He's saying the system they're using right now is called bleeding the banks. He was the chief economist for the World Bank. He said, I've seen this all over the world. When they get in trouble, they realize it's a zero-sum game. Any money spent by the taxpayer is money that goes straight into their pockets. So they bleed as much money as they can out of the banks before the taxpayer wakes up and realizes that he's been getting his pocket picked the whole time. So every day that we delay, the people who brought you this mess and who already made a ton of money in bonuses for profits that never really existed, they get richer and richer and richer. I mean, how much more evidence do you need? They took $18 billion of our money last month. $18 billion. They said, oh, don't worry, we didn't take your money. We took it out of another part of the company. <laughs> it's all the same company. It's all the same money. Now, we have to end it today. And if, instead of going forward, today we went backward. This has to change. I don't know. If it doesn't, we should all, I mean, rise up in our anger. We really should. If you don't get angry about this, then they're going to continue to make, take our money for the rest of time. Time coming, but I know the change is going to come. And it's too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there Just beyond the sky It's been a long, long time coming But I know a change is gonna come And I miss my family My little girl She is my princess I'd give her the world It's been a long, long time coming But I know the change is gonna come I just need some comfort Some kind of belief That this war we're fighting Can really bring some peace There's no On that theme Conservative columnist David Brooks said a number of things in his March 3rd column for the New York Times, but you'd be forgiven for not getting past this one.
Quote, the U.S. has never been a society riven by class resentment, yet the Obama budget is predicated on a class divide. The president issued a read-my-lips pledge that no new burdens will fall on 95 percent of the American people. All the costs will be borne by the rich and all benefits redistributed downward, close quote. Seriously now, what do you say about someone who believes that the line between the richest 5% of a society and the rest is a class divide? Does Brooks find a class divide between Warren Buffett and everybody else, such that we must distribute benefits equally between the two groups? It'd be laughable if Brooks didn't have such a prominent platform for his top-down myopia, and if, as we see, it weren't so widely shared in the press corps. You could, however, find an antidote to such thinking in the next day's Los Angeles Times, where columnist Michael Hiltzik engaged this class war trope, noting that if we want to talk war, the most salient one would be the one that, quote, has pitted the upper 1% of income earners against almost everybody else. Over the last three decades, a period that spans Republican and Democratic administrations alike, average family income has scarcely budged an inch, while the wealthy have grown measurably wealthier, close quote. Noting Obama's plan for, for instance, restoring the top income tax brackets to their levels before the 2001 tax cuts, Hiltzik writes, quote, Does this constitute redistribution of income? You bet. That's what government does. George W. Bush redistributed income, too, from the lower and middle-income wage earners who pay the bulk of Social Security payroll taxes to the higher earners whose income tax cut was financed out of the Social Security surplus, close quote. Indisputable information, but still too rarely presented clearly by a corporate press corps who find class war when benefits go in one direction and neutral economic policy when they go another. My love, let me go again, right back, back to the top of the slide. talk on the cable channels and in the blogosphere, you would think alien forces from another planet have conquered our nation's capital. It's like that scary movie from the 1950s, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Some film scholars believe the movie is a paranoid parable warning of a communist takeover of America. But today, the body snatchers are are you ready for this? Socialists. That's right. Socialists reportedly swarming over the city and making off with the means of production, namely the federal budget. I'm not making this up. Newsweek spotted the enemy a month ago, and it was us. Here's a headline on Salon.com. Newt Gingrich, reincarnated once again as himself, 
sounds as if Obama ate his contract with America for lunch and coughed it up as European socialism. I think it is the boldest effort to create a European socialist model we have seen. But the ghosts being conjured in the corridors of power aren't those great American radicals, Eugene V. Debs or Norman Thomas. No, Stalin, Marx, and Lenin have risen from the grave and are stalking our highest officials. Just listen to CNBC's Jim Cramer. We're in real trouble. We're in real trouble between what's happening in the world economy and our president, who seems to be taking his cues. Guess who he's taking his cues from? No, not Mao. Not Pancho Villa, although I had lunch with him. No, he's taking cues from Lenin. And I don't mean the all we need is love Lenin. I'm talking about that we'll take every dime Americans have Lenin. And others followed suit. Liberal Democrats, Obama and his minions, and the drive-by media are speeding down the highway, implementing socialism as fast as they can. Some economists say the stimulus plan President Obama just put uh, to, into law moves us closer to socialism. One small step towards fixing the economy or one giant leap towards socialism in the United States. That is socialism, That's pure true. and simple. So what does a real live socialist think about all this? We consulted the Endangered Species Act and actually found one, way out in the People's Republic of Southern California. That state's economy has tanked, with one of the country's highest number of foreclosures and unemployment above 10% and climbing. California is a financial earthquake off the Richter scale. All of this is grist for the socialist writer and historian who is sitting with me now. Once a meat cutter and long-haul truck driver, Nowadays, Mike Davis teaches creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. This recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant has written so many books we can barely get them on the screen for you. Two of his histories of Los Angeles and Southern California, City of Quartz and Ecology of Fear, were bestsellers. His latest is titled, In Praise of Barbarians, Essays Against Empire. Mike Davis, welcome to the journal. My pleasure, Bill. You know, Mike, there's so much talk from that side of the spectrum, raising the specter of socialism, and I thought I might as well talk to a real socialist about what the term means. I mean, I cannot find anyone in this country advocating the abolition of private markets and the wage systems or nationalizing all the major industries. No one's arguing for supplanting capitalism, are they? I am. You are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm in kind of old school socialist in the way that Billy Graham's an old school Baptist. Uh, I do genuinely uh, believe in the democratic social ownership of the means of production. But that's religion. Okay? That's yeah. the religious principle. Uh, and in the role, practice? Well, I mean, the role of the, of, of the left, or the left that needs to exist in this country, is, is not to come up with utopian <clears throat> blueprints and how we're going to run the, uh, an entirely alternative uh, society, much less to uh, express nostalgia about authoritative bureaucratic societies, uh, uh, you know, like the Soviet Union and, or, or China. It's really to try and articulate the common sense of, of the labor movement and social struggles on the ground. So, for instance, you know, where you have the complete collapse of the financial system, and where the remedies proposed uh, are 
above all, privilege the, the creditors, very people responsible for that. It's a straightforward enough proposition to say, hey, you know, if we're going to own the banking system, why not make the decisions and make them in lines with social policy that ensures that housing is affordable, that school loans are affordable, that small business gets credit? You know, why not turn the banking system into a public utility? Now, that doesn't have have to be in any sense an anti-capitalist demand, but it's a radical demand that asks fundamental question about the institution and who holds economic power. You know, why isn't the federal government's not taking a more direct role in decision making? I mean, I believe, for instance, during the savings and loan crisis, a period when the... 1980s, uh, late, yeah. late 80s, right. Yeah. I mean, the Resolution Trust Corporation was set up to, uh, you know, buy up the abandoned apartments and homes and then sold them uh, the fire sale to right. to private interests for a year or two it had the means of resolving much of the housing crisis you know in the United States why shouldn't the federal government basically uh, turn that housing stock into a solution for people's housing needs sell them directly to homeowners at discount you know rent them out in other words the role of the left is to ask the the deeper questions about who has power how institutions work, and propose alternatives that, that seem more commonsensical in terms of the direct interest of you know, satisfying human needs and equality in this society. I think President Obama and uh, the liberal Democrats that, that still exist uh, should actually welcome a revival of the left. It only strengthens them in a way. Uh, it's like being Martin Luther King without having Malcolm X. But the problem with the Democrats is they fold. The Democrats tend to concede to, to, to the Republicans uh, a, a power and to give them uh, a veto or ability to is, is shape legislation that they, they need them to. We need something of the spirit of Roosevelt in 1937-1938 when he tried to take on the right wing of his own party, the Supreme Court, the right wing of the Republican Party. He was accused of being a socialist, and they tried to paint him with that. He was accused of conducting class war, as in fact now Obama's being accused by conservative forces of launching a class war because he wants to return the tax rate to 39.9%, which is where it was in the Clinton era. I mean, how do you deal with this charge of class war coming from the Wall Street Journal and the Heritage Foundation and others? Well, I think you deal with it by saying, yeah, we want class war too. And here's what class war means, that the only possibility of getting this country out of the crisis, the only possibility that really deep-set uh, reforms can occur, including the protection and, and, and renewal of the productive base of, of the economy, is labor has to become more powerful. We need more protests. We need more noise uh, in, in the street. At the end of the day, political parties and political leaderships tend to legislate what social movements and social forces have already achieved in the factories or the streets or, you know, in the civil, in the civil rights demonstration. And the problem is that so many progressives, so many liberals, uh, now treat the new president as if he were El Comandante. And we line up, follow, you know, follow his leadership. But he's maneuvering in a relationship of forces where people on the left, progressives, even the Black Caucus, doesn't count for that that much. 
He's appeasing blue dogs. He's having to deal with Republicans. And, and to an absolutely unnecessary extent, I think he's following the template of the Clinton years. And, of course, the Clinton years were years of the closest collaboration between financial industry and the, and the White House and the produced financial deregulation. I think the best thing the, the president has done is the stimulus. The worst thing has been to continue the, the bailout along the same lines that it was initiated by Treasury Secretary Paulson, a bailout that's clearly rejected by the majority of the, the American people and, and seen as a reward uh, you know, to the very people who you know, ignited this crisis in the first place. But the deep questions about how do you rebuild a productive economy, the necessary role of the public sector in providing employment, whether fair trade is impossible, to what extent deglobalization, deglobalization, as some people call it. Reversing history? Well, history, we learned, is, uh, you know, can be uh, reversed. I mean, the saddest thing, and remember with, with my own dad, who was a meat and potatoes, 30s trade unionist, love, love Roosevelt, and he's a guy who grew up in the early 20th century believing in American history. Every time the American people struggled and, and won a new right, okay, that became then a foundation for the other struggle, and that was irreversible. And he saw in the, you know, in the Reagan years, uh, history going in, in, in reverse. His union pension fund went bankrupt. The particular industry he worked in basically uh, became defunct. And, and it, was, it was harrowing to me to see my father, who was the most patriotic guy I ever, ever knew, as it, it struck him that we're always continually fighting for principles and rights, and they can be taken away. History, you know, uh, you know can go in, in reverse. But by the same token, where does it say in the Bible that we should live in a, in, in a globalized uh, uh, economy where uh, the world's, you know, run by, you know, Wall Street or the authoritarian leaders of, of China? I haven't seen that. People with ideas like yours in the last 30 years have been marginalized. No coverage in the press. Uh, no participation in the public debates. Why did you become a radical? What made you so radical? <laughs> well, in, in my case, there really was a, a burning uh, a bush, and that was the civil rights movement in San Diego where I grew up in the 50s and 60s. And when I was 16 years old, my father had a heart attack, and I had to leave school for a while to to work. And I have a black side of my family by marriage. They got me to come to a demonstration in Congress of Racial Equality uh, in front of the Bank of America in downtown San Diego. And uh, I mean, it literally transformed my life, just the sheer beauty of it and the, the sheer righteousness of it. And I won't claim that every decision or political stance or political group I joined as a result of the civil rights movement was the right one. But it, it permanently shaped, shaped my life. Then I think it was a, a friend of yours, this great Texas populist uh, newspaper editor, Archer Fullingen. I was in Texas in 67, and most of my friends were becoming Marxists, and I didn't want to become a Marxist. And I heard him gave a great speech, so I made a pilgrimage. He's sitting on his porch carving a gourd out in Coons, Texas, Hardin County. And uh, I, I said, Archer, can we revive the populist party? You know, can you be the leader of the populist party? And he, he looked at me and he said, son, 
He said, you're one of the dumbest pissants I've ever met. He says, the populist party is history. Corporations run this country, and they run the Democratic Party, and you better figure out this stuff for uh, yourself, and it's what I've been trying to do since. I mean, to be a socialist uh, in the United States is not to be an orphan. It's, it's really it's to stand in the shadow in a you know immense history of American radicalism and 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 labor, but with the responsibility uh, to ensure its regeneration. And I actually think the American left is about to receive a huge blood transfusion in uh, the next year or two. It, it has to because the existence of a left, the existence of radical social economic critiques, the existence of imagination that goes beyond. Uh, selfishness and principles of competition uh, is, is, is necessary to, to, to have any kind of serious debate in, in, in this country. I um, pull something off the web that you wrote recently. You said, I believe great opportunities lie ahead for the rebels of the world to swell our ranks and take the fight forward. A new generation of young people is discovering that their political engagement counts. Now, where are you seeing that? Well, I, I have no difficulty uh, finding hope. Hope kind of seeks me out. I, I've seen things in my life that I, I couldn't really believe happened. Black working people in the South, anti-war, uh, uh, you know, GIs. And when you've seen that happen in, in, in your life, you can never be pessimistic. But there's enormous legacy of the American, American left and of American radicalism in general that has to be nurtured and continued and passed down and let new generations shape it in you know, the ways it needs to be shaped. Mike Davis, thank you very much for being with me on the journey. receives $85 from cash for gold. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. White House officials publicly condemned cash for gold today in response to a check for only $85 received in exchange for the entire contents of Fort Knox. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner told reporters he and the American people had expected considerably more from the company. To my way of thinking, $85 is an insult. Uh, I believe we could have pawned the Liberty Bell for more than that. Government officials fear they may have made a bigger mistake by working with the company's sister corporation, Cash for Plutonium.
record let's acknowledge that all this current rhetoric about socialism in Washington is partisan poppycock the word being fought over so fiercely today lost its meaning long ago the late social activist and preacher William Stone Coffin said on my show some years ago that we have to keep pressing the socialist questions because they're questions of justice but that we should be dubious about the socialist answers because while the biblical prophets may call for justice to roll down his mighty waters Figuring out the irrigation system is damned hard. Furthermore, two months into office, Barack Obama is still standing at the crossroads. Some old hands around him yearn for a third Clinton term, government as subsidiary of corporate America. Ardent progressive followers, on the other hand, hope his heart really leans to the left toward the public provision of public goods. But at bottom, the issue isn't one ideology or another. We're not that kind of country. The issue is inequality. Two British researchers have just made news with a study over three decades showing that where income is more evenly distributed, people are healthier in mind, body, and spirit. You can find out more about their report on our website at pbs.org. They found that violence, mental illness, overcrowded prisons, drugs, and obesity are more likely in a society where the gap between the haves and have-nots is as great as it is in the United States. Our gap grew over the past quarter century as capitalism went on a spree of speculating, swindling, and cheating. The great collapse is a painful correction. Our long-term rescue, however, depends not on any ism, but on democracy's ability to create a more level playing field, where the health of a battered woman in San Antonio is every bit as valued as a major domo's on Wall Street. PrivacyHarbor.com private and free email services developed a solution for spam, viruses, and identity theft at the source. Not only is PrivacyHarbor.com more secure than online banking technology, but it stands alone by not taking your private content and selling it to advertisers. Gmail, Hotmail, and Yahoo do. Sometimes free email comes at a big cost. Go to PrivacyHarbor.com today and enter the code POD, P-O-D, and get your free and private email along with your complimentary report on the dangers of advertising for the internet users. PrivacyHarbor.com, because normal email is not secure. The Republican senators are proposing something backed by big business, so you know this is going to be good. They're saying that they want to allow uh, American companies to repatriate their foreign earnings back into the United States. Now, what does that mean? They make money uh, outside the U.S., and if they, when they bring it back in, they've got to pay taxes. So instead of bringing it back in, they just keep it outside the U.S. Now, it would be advantageous to them, and it would lead to uh, you know, helping our economy and certainly our tax base, et cetera, if they brought that money back in. And they want to bring it back in. Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought this up in the first place. But if they do, they have to pay the regular tax rate on it, which is 35%. They don't want to do that. It, it, paying taxes is for suckers. It's for you poor people. <laughs> taxes. 
So the new Republican proposal as part of the stimulus package is to charge, instead of 35%, 5.35%. Now, to get a sense of the enormity of the number, the amount of taxes that they're shielding from the U.S. government by not bringing it in, back into the U.S., just charging 5.35% would raise $565 billion of additional tax revenue. I mean, that almost solves the entire problem right there. If instead of charging 5%, we charge 10%, it paid for the whole stimulus package. If they paid the actual 35% they're supposed to, it would solve all of our financial problems. Almost all. That would. I mean, we could pay for the Iraq war, we could pay for the stimulus package, we could pay for the bailout, and we might have money left over for health care and energy. But God forbid the corporation should actually pay the taxes that they owe. No, 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 can't have it, can't do it. So they're using this as an opportunity with their helpers, the Republican senators, to try to sneak the money back in by paying only 5% rather than 35%. Now, we're stuck between a, a rock and a hard place because I, we need that money desperately. So a part of me thinks, well, if we can somehow incentivize them to bring it back in, maybe it does make sense to cut a deal. Maybe it's 25%. Shoot, maybe it's 10%. Maybe it's as low as that to get the money back in because we need it. But, see, here's my fundamental problem with that. That means they're holding the money ransom over our head. Oh, we're not going to pay our taxes. We're not going to do it unless you lower our rate from 35 to 5. What are you going to do now? You want us to pay? Well, then lower the taxes. Now, do you get to do that? Do you get to say to the U.S. government, oh, I don't like paying my taxes. I'm not going to pay 35%. Until you agree to give me 5%, uh, I'm not going to do it. Well, you'd be in jail. Unless, of course, you had Republican senators to help you out which does happen from time to time, and it happens in this case. So here's my new idea, okay? Again, in this crazy world where Jake Huger is president, uh, look, uh, you're going to pay those taxes, and you're going to bring that money back in here, or we're going to have consequences. Look, I'm not going to start by taking out whole industries at a time. I don't want to cause economic trouble. I'm not going to start with the biggest one of you. But I'm going to make an example out of one or two of you. I'm going to grab you and I'm going to say, hey, listen, uh, if you don't pay your taxes like you're supposed to, uh, I'm going to look into every nook and cranny of your business. And you better d make damn sure that everything you're doing is on the up and up and everything is legal. Because I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Now, how does 35% sound? Well, maybe I'll pass a bill where it'll be 45%. So pay your freaking taxes. It's tax day. That's not how these guys roll. If they let him come back in at 5%, I won't be surprised at all. And as usual, it'll be ridiculously weak.
The current cover of Newsweek might cause you to do a double take with the announcement, we are all socialists now. You might think that there's been a rather radical change in ownership at the Newsweekly or a quiet revolution in the country at large. Not to worry, the magazine doesn't actually mean it, and in fact, two of the articles inside make that pretty clear. One piece explains why Americans just don't really hate the rich, even now, though Americans are now apparently happy with the idea of raising their taxes. It's unclear why this would seem all that new. Most polls over the years have shown that Americans generally believe the rich aren't paying their fair share. Another piece by reporter Michael Friedman begins with this line, quote, Have you noticed that Barack Obama sounds more like the president of France every day? Close quote. If you answered no, or maybe huh, Friedman's explanation is that Obama's sounding alarmingly European. The distinctly continental sniff of his economic rhetoric apparently evokes business bashing and protectionism that was, until recently, quote, largely relegated to the far left. Close quote. Well, the real problem, according to Newsweek, is what it's going to do to us as Americans. If economic growth slows down, it could quote, kill rugged American individualism, close quote. How so? Well, if employment trends don't pick up, quote, an ever greater number of people will start looking to the government for support, close quote. The magazine continued, it's very easy to imagine a chorus of former American individualists demanding cushy French-style pensions and free British-style health care if their private stock funds fail to recover and unemployment inches upward toward 10% and remains there. Hmm, pensions and health care for all. This crisis is worse than we thought. Here's a simple way uh, to talk to the American companies about bringing their taxes back in from, uh, from the countries, from the foreign countries they want to bring them back in from. Now, as I explained in the last segment, they want to knock that tax rate down from 35% to 5.35%. Uh, and uh, here, I said if I was president, I'd incentivize them in a different way. Well, you could say it this way. You want to keep your money abroad. I get it. You know, and it's, it's a new world. It's international business, etc., and you think, all right, why don't I just keep it in Holland or Japan or wherever I have it? That's great. Um, you're no longer an American company. You want to be a, a multinational company? That's great. And some of you uh, will not be able to get contracts with the American government because you're not an American company. And I'd start with a defense contractor, and I'd work my way down. Say, if you don't want to pay American taxes, well, I'm not going to give you government contracts from the United States of America. It's the most obvious thing in the whole wide world. You want to get government contracts from the U.S.? Then pay your freaking taxes. So you came in my
Americans have become increasingly unaware of their surroundings over the last few decades, and we've grown to accept things as they are presented to us, rather than looking past the spin and seeing things as they are. According to my next guest, this is a particularly dangerous phenomenon now, when we are literally watching our economy and infrastructure crumbling before our eyes. Joining me now is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the upcoming book, Empire of Illusion, Chris Hedges. I've been reading your stuff on Truth Dig. I've always been a fan because I think you put a lot of heart into reacting to the forces that are upon us as opposed to uh, uh, looking for sound bites or, or quick answers. But it, the, the tone I'm getting from your stuff on, on entertainment, on uh, overpopulation, and on politics and your support of, of real socialism uh, says to me, and I thought about this this morning as I was reading it, that, that the four horsemen are here. War, famine, plague, and death are upon us. And what I'm impressed with in, in how you handle it is that you, you seek a rational voice, that you think that the time is now to not be absorbed in this stuff and to start speaking you know, practically and rationally as responsible citizens of a planet. Yeah, because either we learn to live with severe limitations uh, and change our lifestyle, or we continue to exist in a culture of illusion. Uh, a belief that uh, we can uh, dig deep within us and have everything we desire. I mean, look at the financial system. Mm -hmm. The attempt to resurrect a financial system that uh, was based on borrowing and consumption uh, is uh, lunacy. Uh, it's never going to come back. We can pump as much money as we want into AIG and, and you know, Goldman Sachs and Citibank and the rest of them. Uh, but it's a false economy. It's a, an a, you know, economy of consumption, not a, an economy and, of production. And they defend that as if it's practical. Their, their answer to it is that if we can just get banks lending people who have no the, money right, or the, jobs money again. Right, then people will go to the shopping malls and buy all sorts of crap they don't need. And we can get a new bubble. And, yeah. And fake it's, numbers. It's absolutely crazy. What we're up against is the power of this illusion that you speak right. of that is not God, that is a, a, a false God, if anything, leads people to engage in uh, a narcissistic disposition you know, completely entrenched in denial. And I don't know if it's surmountable. I mean, how do you see it as being you know, transcendent? Well, because the, the, the bail, all of this stuff isn't going to work. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. It isn't going to work. And the, the danger of continuing to exist in a culture of illusion, in believing that we can have everything we want, that it's just a matter, as Oprah tells us, and the Christian right tells us, and corporatism tells us, and the consumer culture tells us, and celebrity culture tells us that if we just dig deep enough and find that inner strength, uh, you know, we'll build sort of the paradise of our desire. The danger of that is that already the walls are falling around us. And yet we cling to this illusion, uh, perpetuated, of course, by a consumer society, which has a vested interest in perpetuating because they make money off it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and my fear is that, that when things finally crumble to such an extent that we can't ignore it, um, we have, in effect, uh, by clinging to illusion, remained in a state of childishness. And we will then reach out for saviors, for demagogues, for people who will save us, because we've never grown up. We've never confronted the reality around us. But isn't that somewhat, I mean, I think that that is true, and I also think it's somewhat optimistic. I think that when I see politicians speaking in a, 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 a shaky confidence, about what is happening, what's going to happen, what may happen, that their fear is tangible to me. So my yeah. fear 
in what you're saying is that we don't really know what it looks like for the number of people that are going to all of a sudden have right. nothing, be right. desperate, right. be angry. I mean, the, 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 the possibilities of this becoming totalitarian just in terms of a police state seem to me to be high. Yeah, that, very high. That, that if they're going to get out, they're desperate, and, and crime is obviously going to go right. up, but depending on how quickly it happens, it seems that a totalitarian uh, fascism w would be easily legislated. Yes. Well, everything's ready to go. And, you know, as Orwell wrote, the, the, the two fundamental tactics that totalitarian systems use are fraud and force. Well, we've already seen the fraud. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, when will we see the force? And I didn't vote for Obama. I voted for Nader. But I have a kind of sympathy for him. I mean, I'm certainly much happier that he's there rather than the dreaded George Bush. Right. But he has surrounded himself with people who serve the system. They serve the corporate state. Uh, not only has he surrounded himself with systems managers of a system that's failed, uh, but many of these managers, people like Geithner, uh, Larry Summers, uh, Robert Rubin, you know, all of whom uh, spent their uh, professional careers empowering the engine uh, that created the financial collapse that we live in, mm -hmm. essentially through deregulation, destruction of Glass-Siegel, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm worried that whether it's because of a lack of will, whether it's because of timidity, I don't know. I don't know his psychology. We are going to waste what few resources we have left. Um, because it's not limitless, the amount of money we can keep pumping into Wall Street and investment houses I, I, and, and printing. I don't even think it exists. I, I mean, it well, seems to me that the, the, the trick here is that we're dealing with fictional numbers. Well, b because essentially what they're, it, it's, it, what they're doing is borrowing massive amounts of money that they can never pay back. I mean, the reality is they can never pay it back. Well, eventually China will take its real estate. Yeah. And, and we, we will all be living in a Chinese country. Yeah. Is that possible? <laughs> I, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, a lot of it depends on, you know, one of the surprising things is the strength of the dollar, given it, it still is the currency. I think people are, are, financial markets are wary about going into yen. They've not gone into the euro, which is sort of interesting. Um, uh, there may be a kind of artificial uh, inflation of the currency just because there's nowhere else to go at the moment. Um, but my fear, of course, and it's, it's, you know, Economics 101, is that if they keep doing this, and of course we're seeing now that they keep coming back for more. I mean, AIG just came back sure. for another $30 billion. And And my fear is that at a certain point, the currency, which is overinflated as it is, just finally can't be sustained. Then you go from stagflation to... Uh, or deflation to inflation. I mean, that's Weimar. It's what it's what it what brought down Yugoslavia and started the civil war. And I think that you're right about the capacity for violence. Um, and you know, Andrew Basevich has written some really good stuff on this. Um, and, and he writes his focus is the surveillance state, the creation of the surveillance state over the last few decades, and 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 how both parties. I mean, all essentially they service this surveillance state. The capacity for monitoring control intervention uh, by the state is something, uh, you know, probably unseen in human history. I've been thinking about today And I'm sorry for the way I don't think, just say There's no
economy is gunned down during a gas station robbery. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. We have breaking news that the U.S. economy has been pronounced dead at the scene at an area thrifty go convenience mart following an attempted holdup. According to store clerk Jim Hardy, the economy was shot at close range by a disturbed customer shortly after purchasing lottery tickets. Well, the economy had just won $2 on this scratch ticket, and I just made it that much sadder. The troubled U.S. economy had been unable to work due to injuries received after being thrown off a speeding hobo train in December. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio Fire. I'm Mark Marin. Right now I'm talking with best-selling author Chris Hedges about his forthcoming book, Empire of Illusion. It's a disturbing book that really illustrates that we have all become totally disconnected from what is happening around us, from reality, and most of it is fueled by corporatism, Oprahism, and the Christian right, of course. Let's talk now. If uh, I'm going to try to move this towards, because I assume that the new book uh, has something to do with with activating socialism and, and also dealing with the idea that that overpopulation is a problem, and then dealing with the illusions and the marketing of of media product and God, right? Yeah. Okay. So in, in addressing you know politics now. It seems to me that it wouldn't be that hard if people were willing to shift from whatever the hell we have now, which is a corporate-occupied uh, pseudo-democracy boarding on, a, boarding on a police state, to, to something that resembles socialism if it can be sold to the American people as being a positive thing. The free market became our surrogate religion. Uh, we, we were sold this idea that an unfettered capitalist system is a force of nature, which mm -hmm. can't be questioned. We, of course, it's an ideology. I mean, you know, as Marx understood, capitalism is is revolutionary. It is a form of radicalism because it reduces everything, uh, human beings, the natural world, to commodities. Commodities whose only intrinsic worth is monetary. To, to what extent can they be exploited? The, the problem with turning everything into a commodity is that you exploit it until you kill right. it. And that's what's happening. We're right. killing the ecosystem, and we are literally killing the American working class and increasingly the middle class. Right. It's adapt or that's die. That's what globalization it's, it's, is. It's, that's right. It's, it's serfdom or death. And so the uh, response has been to create 
this bizarre kind of socialism for the rich. It's the largest transference of wealth upwards Corporate in American there. history. Um, so we're all, we've, we've, you know, uh, I mean, the irony is that, that Bush triggered it. Um, so it's not a question of whether we're socialists. It's a question of what kind of socialism are we embracing. Are we embracing socialism for the elite? Uh, and, of course, unfortunately, it's the elite that, that's now funneling, looting the Treasury. Or did uh, it already. And, it's very interesting. It. You see people like Jim Cramer and you see uh, corporatists coming out. Like, you know, when you see these, these bank heads, these Goldman Sachs guys, these Wayman guys, you know, on the stands in front of uh, uh, congressional committees, I mean, those are the guys that are the last to come out of their caves. You never see them anywhere. And there they are trying to defend their yeah. way of life. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's a really important point. I mean, do, do we know the name of the person who runs ExxonMobil? Do we know the name of... Uh, you know, the head of Raytheon. I mean, th this is where real power is. That's right. And yet it's it's anonymous power, and they want it to be anonymous. Believe me, if, if they wanted us to know their names, we'd all know their names. And um, that wedding of sort of anonymous or secret power, coupled with uh, the perniciousness of the corporate and the surveillance state, um, means that should the American public become restive, which I think it probably will at a certain point, I mean, they're they're being pushed beyond the breaking point, um, you know, the, the capacity for, um, uh, you know, control and repression is high, very high. Well, I, I, I guess I tried to, to, to steer the ship towards a, a solution, but I, I know that you know, most people that I talk to, uh, they don't really have one. Uh, and, and some people are closer to the truth than others, and, and you seem to be very close to it. I guess my only hope, and, and you as a person who at least at one point in your life uh, uh, pursued a a, um, a a Christian uh, agenda in the sense of what it really means to to build community, to understand forgiveness, to take care of people, and, and to and to understand and, and engage in humility and charity. That, uh, in light of everything we're saying, is that what we're going to have to rely on? Yeah, it's it's going to be you know communities that will save us, uh, however small they are. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the whole ethos of the corporate state is the destruction of community. It's, it's about building a society without compassion. Uh, everybody's worth within the society is determined by the wealth that they can generate. Um, it's why we take our mentally ill and throw them out on heating grates, or 25% of whom live in prisons. Um, you, you know, you, you hear people going after... Uh, I just did an event where they had someone from the Heritage Foundation, and they got up and had the audacity to blame poor people for taking out loans they couldn't pay back uh, because of credit card schemes and everything else. And uh, that uh, heartlessness uh, is something that uh, is endemic to the corporate or the capitalist system. Uh, and it's one that uh, we, ha we have to begin to understand that that the system that we have embraced, the ideology we've embraced, is not morally neutral. Uh, it, it is. It is morally it, bankrupt. It, it's one that absolutely is devoid of any kind of human compassion. And you can't build or sustain a community uh, unless, you, at a certain point, you realize that it's not always about you. That it's also about the other, and especially about the weak. I mean, I covered wars for 20 years, and and every great unit, whether, you know, I was with the Marines in the first Gulf War or the FMLN in El Salvador, they never left their wounded in, or their dead on, on, on the battlefield, ever. And, and I saw them go back and collect bodies at, under great risk and sometimes engendering more wounded among the unit. Now, in a capitalist system, what's a body, a dead body worth? Nothing. 
As a commodity, it's not worth anything. And yet those units were always the most effective, most cohesive units because they knew that when one of them went down, they would all take care of each other. And I think that kind of an ethic we've lost uh, through, uh, you know, the, the rise of sort of the corporate state. Sure. That, that, and, and, and that's created this kind of Hobbesian world. I mean, you see it on reality TV. What's the purpose of, you know, going on a show, the game show like Survivor? Not or, to get eliminated. It's, and it's to knife everyone else in the back. And what's your reward for knife being the most manipulative, the most pernicious, the most dishonest, the most two-faced, is you get money and, and a shot at celebrity, which never lasts particularly long. No. Um, and, and that is the ethic of the consumer culture, and that is what is being uh, driven down our throats and, 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 and not questioned. And, in, and, and I think that the economic collapse in this country was presaged by a moral collapse, a loss that, that values are important, that... Uh, that, there, that there is a kind of there are moral imperatives uh, that you must follow in order to hold a society together, uh, and that once you jettison those moral comparatives, I mean, it's never about integrity anymore. It's always about presentation. How how are we? How do we present ourselves? That's right. Martha Stewart's made a whole living on it. That's right. Martha Stewart teaches you how to uh -huh. set design. Uh -huh. It's not about actually having a functional or good relationship with your spouse or your children. It's about creating the Potemkin house and the, and with the perfectly folded napkins and the bouquets right. and everything else. And the worst thing that you can need is help. Yeah. Well, look, I, uh, I have to say that, you know, seeing that we are in the death throes of capitalism, most likely, and, and we don't know uh, what we're heading into, I certainly appreciate your pursuit of truth in, in, in light of this. And uh, I guess we'll find out what happens, that, you know, if there is any um, credibility to any sort of prophecy that, that love might win out, it's, it's going to be on communities to figure well, that out. Well, everybody should pick up Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate. Is the great work of 20th century Russian literature. Okay. He writes in the end that, uh, and he writes about the twin evils of fascism and communism, and he said that, that, it, it, that man's, humankind's meaning is blind, dumb kindness. And, and that uh, no matter how powerful these systems become, and they be, can become very powerful, they've proven throughout human history the incapacity to crush that human kindness. And the more blind and the more dumb it is, the more subversive it becomes. And uh, it, sometimes in, in times of despair, it, it's a mistake to put our hope into systems. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for your continued patience as uh, the show's release schedule continues to be a little bit slower than I would really like. Uh, today's uh, big excuse slash exciting news is that I moved, and that's the reason for the, the big delay. There was lots of packing and loading and driving and unloading and unpacking and organizing going on that pulled me away from the show uh, for a little while. And uh, and so the exciting news now is that after two years of living in Washington, D.C., I actually now live in Washington, D.C., and I'm still getting used to the idea of uh, not having any federal representation. It uh, makes me a little dizzy, actually. But thanks, of course, as always, for your continued support. Uh, it's great to hear from those of you who've been taking action on the 
555 concept and then writing me an email to let me know that you've done it. It's a excellent feeling and uh, I, you know I really appreciate that and of course anyone who's taking action and not letting me know of course I love you guys too and uh, you guys are what is helping keep this show going so just a quick reminder the 555 is in order to help keep this show going what we need is one of three things from you if you've got five bucks you can send our way we'd love the support if you can take the time and, uh, and I haven't talked about this much recently, but there's a great tool on our website, bestoftheleft.com, where you can actually go find clips really easily, and there's instructions on how to do it. It's really easy and really fun, actually. Go to bestoftheleft.com and check out the uh, very obvious and prominent link to go find clips for the show. Find five clips for us and send them in. And it makes a gigantic difference. This episode was put together with a huge amount of uh, material brought in by listeners. And just we, we just couldn't do the show the way we do it uh, without you guys. And then finally, the most important thing, of course, is to spread the word about the show to at least five friends. And, you know, don't forget, if you have a blog, why don't you uh, go ahead and drop a blog post about us. Add us to your uh, blog role. Uh, if you have a website of any kind, we have banners that you can uh, you can put up and help spread the word in any way you can. So check out bestofleft.com again. Check out the spread the word link, and uh, and there's all the information you need on all the ways that you can help spread the word about the show. Of course, if you don't have a website or anything like that, you know just go ahead and uh, send like a office wide email or post on Facebook about us. You know, we actually have a Facebook page. Uh, I've entirely neglected to mention that, uh, maybe ever. But we have a Facebook page. You can become a fan of the show and let all of your friends know that you're a fan of us and uh, let them know how great we are and how much they should totally listen. And then, of course, finally, the great way to spread the word to a bunch of people you have never met and will never meet is to go ahead and leave us a five-star review in the iTunes Music Store. And, you know, it, it's it's been a little while since uh, someone left a review there, and I know that because the most recent review is a really ugly uh, one-star, this-show-sucks kind of review. So if, like, you know, 10 or 15 or, like, 150 of you want to go ahead and hop on over to iTunes and... Uh, push that one down a little bit it would be better for appearances we'll just say and that's all i have for you today so coming to you from inside the beltway and border yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you from bestoftheleft.com black and Oh